Our speaker this evening is Ian Willison, who uh, has spoken from this platform, I think, more times than anyone in the history of the series, with the possible exception of Nicholas Barker, who comes from the same place. Willison has talked variously on intellectual matters concerning the history of libraries. He's tonight going to summarize all the talks that he's ever given here, and indeed most of the talks that, every, that anyone else has ever given here in uh, the English-speaking uh, world as a field of study, implications for bibliography. Mr. Ian Willison, it's a great pleasure to welcome you back. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I've just um, finishing up a visit around the world, particularly to Australia, New Zealand, the South Pacific. And I would like to speak, uh, or base my remarks on my experiences during that trip. And you would therefore please forgive me if uh, what I say is a little unstructured because some of the points I want to make only happened to me uh, last week in Fiji and Honolulu. Um, perhaps I'd better explain that uh, this is one of a series of visits that uh, I am making on behalf of the British Library to uh, prepare for a series of colloquia we are holding in the library, uh, all of which relate to particular areas within what we call our overseas English collections, that is to say, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India, Africa, and so on and so forth. Uh, we have already had the colloquia dealing with our United States collections and our Canadian collections. That The Canadian one was last August, and the purpose of this trip to Australia and New Zealand, and the South Pacific insofar as it interacts with Australia and New Zealand, is to prepare for the third in this series of colloquia at the library next February. But I don't want simply to uh, reminisce about the sins of uh, Canadian Pacific Airlines, which are manifold, I fear, uh, but I want to try to uh, use as a framework the uh, problem and matter of the general relationship between the world of learning, on the one hand, and its main supporting institution, the research library, on the other. And I will say that I want to speak about three main uh, aspects of this. What I have to say, I hope, will fall into three main sections, therefore. First of all, to uh, suggest some signs of uh, interest in the English-speaking world as a field of study, both from the point of view of the uh, world of learning, tr trends in scholarship, and also from the point of view of research library organization. Uh, that's the bibliographical side of what I want to say. Then secondly, um, I'd like to suggest, uh, I I very much in outline, uh, some features that do seem to be common throughout the English-speaking world from the point of view of uh, studying its history or the histories of the various countries constituting the English-speaking world. Uh, that will be fairly speculative, I fear. And then thirdly, to conclude with uh, suggesting how uh, we may be uh, 
having fairly soon a, an, organ, an organizing of the uh, research libraries concerned with English-speaking matters, uh, an organization uh, f forming itself a little more coherently on the uh, international level. So let me start immediately by uh, turning to trends in scholarship relating to the English-speaking world as a whole. Uh, that is to say something different from more than the scholarship relating to the particular countries considered uh, independently, of which, of course, there is, there is an immense amount. Now, it seems that uh, one of the main themes, in fact, probably the main theme that's emerging, or has emerged since 1945, and indeed probably since the First World War, is a preoccupation with the decolonization of the uh, former colonies, if one considers the United States, one has to push this back, of course, way to the beginning of the early republic here. But uh, it's become particularly acute and sharp um, in connection with the uh, rapid uh, decolonization of the former British Empire after 45, particularly in Africa, India, and the Caribbean. And Within the theme of decolonization, more specifically, uh, it's a matter of considering the uh, feature which is being called post-dependence. The dependent colonies and the post-dependent new nations emerging from the former colonies. Uh, what do Nigeria, Kenya, India, uh, Fiji, uh, uh, Western Samoa, and so on and so forth, uh, do when they are no longer so dependent on uh, an imperial system. And the imperial system, in turn, has two main aspects. First of all, one might say the obvious one, economic and political dependence and post-dependence. And then, more subtly, but I think from the point of view of this audience, uh, concerned with the book matters, I think more interesting, uh, dependence followed by post-dependence in terms of high culture, particularly literature. So to just go back uh, to economic and political post-dependence, there does seem to be a trend in historical scholarship that's in fairly marked contrast to the scholarship represented by the old Cambridge history of the British Empire, which came out in the Edwardian period, um, in turn deriving from a book which I do recommend. It's an extremely readable book and a much uh, misunderstood book, an unjustly ignored book by Sir John Seeley called The Expansion of England. It's a far more intelligent, uh, certainly readable, uh, late Victorian sermon on uh, the problems of empire. Not, uh, it's not uh, gung-ho at all, but nevertheless it uh, does suggest that uh, uh, that European history should itself be reorganized in terms of the expansion, not only of England, but of Europe, that, the, that what happened in the uh, former British colonies, particularly the United States and India, which were two of Seeley's main preoccupations, throws light back on the sort of true uh, uh, thrust, so to speak, of the history of the United Kingdom. But, of course, it was still Euro-centred, and the Cambridge history of the British Empire, I suppose, is the great monument, as far as the English-speaking world is concerned, of a sort of Euro-centred political and economic history of the English-speaking world. Now, 
since uh, uh, that period, and particularly since 45, there's grown up um, an increasingly strong tradition of much more pluralist-centred uh, history writing of, of the, the former British Empire, the present uh, ex-colonies, um, often associated, strangely enough, with, with Cambridge histories, the Cambridge his, history of uh, uh, Africa, and indeed the Oxford history of Africa is one, the proposed Cambridge history of uh, India, a proposed, again, Cambridge history of Southeast Asia. Um, Nevertheless, the scholarship is much more poly-centered, centered in Singapore or uh, 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 universities in Nigeria or wherever. And it's particularly striking if one visits Canberra, uh, to a less extent uh, Wellington, New Zealand, to see a growth of a history, uh, uh, historical view um, geared not uh, so much uh, around a particular country, Australia itself, but about uh, around the sort of meaningful region of which Australia is a part. There's a growth of what one might call South Pacific or Southwestern Pacific studies in Australia. And the uh, two figures I would recommend to you because they are self-consciously post-imperial. Uh, they are self-consciously decolonial, and they're also extremely readable. Um, take the Pacific Ocean, including uh, Australia and New Zealand, as their meaningful field of studies. One is uh, a series of books, papers in one book, by a very important figure called H.E. Maud, who was first professor of Pacific Studies in Canberra. His collection of papers called Of Islands and Men, and his second book called Slavers in Paradise. Uh, of Islands and Men is a study of the Pacific Islands, very much from the Canberra point of view, and um, Slavers in Paradise, again, is uh, a study of the slavers actually coming from South America into the uh, Pacific Islands. And Maud has this uh, very important idea, um, I should explain, that it's important to remember that he was a former colonial administrator in the Gilbert and Ellis Islands under Sir Arthur Grimble, who wrote a book called The Pattern of Islands, so again, a very attractive book. But Maud, though being a British uh, uh, colonial administrator, um, has gone through this sort of change of life, so to speak, and as a result of actually being an administrator in a particular former colonial area, the, the British possessions in the Pacific, um, has developed what he calls participant history. That is to say, trying to see the history of, in his case, Pacific Islands from their point of view rather than from a Eurocentric point of view. And both his collection of papers called, as I've said, Of Islands and Men, and his book on slavery in the Pacific are very keynoting couple of books that as one talks to historians in Canberra and elsewhere I, uh, his writ runs uh, all through, uh, not in New Zealand but uh, I, I couldn't help noticing this as one talked to historians uh, both in Wellington or Dunedin but also in the Un University of the South Pacific which really does exist uh, across a crowded room I suppose but also in the University of Hawaii um, 
this idea of decentralizing uh, the historical study of the uh, former colonies in the English-speaking world, which somehow runs in parallel with their own decolonization, is, I think, not an illusion. It, it is really um, is the case. The second book I would strongly recommend anybody interested in this trend in scholarship is a, a history of the Pacific Ocean. I might say it's a history of a lot of water, which it largely is. But it's a history of the Pacific Ocean by Oscar Spate, uh, also at Canberra, also associated with the school, with, with the research schools of, of, of Pacific studies. And Spate is, I think, interesting partly because of the ambition in three volumes to write a history of a whole ocean, but also, again, a subtle use of recent historical uh, attitudes and methodologies, in his case largely deriving from the French, particularly those of you who are interested in historical writing, not surprisingly from the write, from writing of Fernand Brodel on the Mediterranean. This idea that the units of historical studies uh, should no longer be nations, particularly European nations or nations considering themselves uh, on the model of former European nation states, but should again base itself on wider geopolitical, so to speak, areas or regions, either continents, in the case of Africa, or oceans in the case of the Pacific or uh, seas, as in the case of Boydell's study of the Mediterranean at the time of Philip II. But as I have said, uh, though uh, this is very noticeable um, as a style of scholarship, uh, uh, particularly in Canberra, and I'll have to return to Canberra uh, uh, a little later for other reasons, but also um, in any area trying to now consider itself in addition to its strictly, as far as the English-speaking world is concerned, in addition to its strictly English origins, going, in other words, to the pre-English settlers' uh, 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 original occupants, the New Zealand clearly preoccupied with the Maoris. Uh, even I have to say to an American audience, Hawaii being much as much preoccupied with the original Hawaiian Polynesians as, as with the United States and its missionaries, um, or the Australians with Aboriginal presence before the first fleet arrived in 1788. Um, the, the, uh, uh, though the general historical thrust, if I may use the phrase, is I think represented by Maud and Spate in particular. Um, nevertheless, as I said uh, at the outset, I think the concern with the state of belles literature, high culture, is uh, equally, if not more, interesting. Uh, but nevertheless, it still comes within this general rubric of decolonization, uh, it has had to wait very largely upon the appearance of reasonably world-ranking literature to be produced in these various areas, the former English-speaking colonies, taking the uh, uh, colony right back 
to uh, the beginnings of Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and even in the case of Australia and New Zealand, this is relatively recent, the development of an autonomous, self-consciously Australian or New Zealand or Caribbean or Fijian literature um, is uh, surprisingly recent, even in the case of Australia and New Zealand, which one might not think to be so, it is uh, not much before the 1920s or 30s that uh, some th a literature that felt itself to be reasonably independent of London, particularly London publishing, began to uh, take off in the Rostovian sense, uh, even in Australia and New Zealand. Therefore, the, the critical study of this literature even more has to be a post-war and very recent um, uh, development. Uh, after all, the actual subject matter hadn't come into existence until, uh, uh, as I have said, e even at the uh, oldest former colony, Australia, um, uh, uh, more than 50 or 60 years ago. And likewise, in any serious way, this is also true of Canada, the United States, as I'll have reason to mention later on, of course, uh, one has to date back to um, the American Renaissance of Emerson and Whitman, if not before. Um, that being the case, uh, the trends in literary scholarship are uh, not, I think, nearly so clear-cut, nor so self-confident. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it is the case that in addition to the what I would call the local histories of, say, Australian literature or New Zealand literature, or in the case of Canada, the literary history of Canada, in addition to these um, uh, the na national literary histories, uh, what uh, the phenomenon I'm interested in, which is the beginnings of the consideration of all these ex-colonial literatures in the broadest and if I hope, inoffensive and technical sense of the word, is beginning, though only just beginning. And if one is, if you're interested, I have here, seem to me, uh, if they've not, um, an example of a submission, of two submissions um, for funding, one to the uh, Canadian, I think, Social Sciences Humanities Research Council. The other is from, probably also, it is certainly Canadian and Australian. Uh, therefore, I, th I imagine it's what's it's, uh, being uh, submitted to what's called SHIRC, let's say the Social Sciences Humanities Research Council. The first is a proposal for a three-volume history of Commonwealth literature. Uh, the second is for a comparative critical study of Commonwealth literature, particularly examining the, the methodological problems and the, uh, uh, presented by uh, an attempt to construe Commonwealth literature as something more than different from uh, the uh, constituent individual national literatures. Um, and if anybody would like to just briefly look through the sort of um, perspectives that the proponents, the proposers have in mind, uh, 
please do ha have a look. My point is that um, the first of all that Commonwealth literature is emerging as an independent field of study from the history of Australia, New Zealand, and so on and so forth. Um, secondly, however, that it is limited, I have to suggest, and indeed in the course of discussing this with the uh, proposers themselves, uh, by not including the United States. I therefore would like to conclude this first section on the scholarship relating to the English-speaking world by suggesting the extent to which, not surprisingly, it is limited as a discipline. Um, the most general limitation, it seems to me, is that it is still essentially resentful in tone that um, the discussion of both the uh, political economic history, particularly, of course, in the case of Africa and the South Pacific, but even in the case of more settled countries like Australia and New Zealand, is still resentful about the imperial English past. And that is a disabling tone and a disabling attitude. Uh, because it does prevent, it seems to me, uh, an adequate consideration that uh, makes uh, reasonable sense of uh, the former motherland. One notices that so much of the... Uh, uh, discussions of uh, post-dependence and decolonization typecast the British as, as uh, not as irredeemable villains, but as un unintelligible. Uh, there, there's, it's, it's very difficult if you're writing in a resentful tone uh, that, uh, that justice must be done and that uh, guilt must be uh, identified from a point of view of a technical historian. I, um, uh, historical analysis finds it very difficult to operate uh, in a tone of resentment. Uh, you remember Eliot's phrase in one of his quartets that uh, the boar hound and the boar must be seen to be reconciled amongst the stars. The historian's point of view would seem to me um, to require uh, a, a sort of star-based uh, impartiality. And the fact is that uh, many of the, uh, the, the, the texts uh, preoccupied with decolonization are too resentful in, uh, uh, in, in tone. But secondly, um, there is uh, what I have just mentioned, the inability uh, yet to bring the history, political and cultural history of the United States to bear on any uh, study so far of the, the history of the English-speaking world as a whole. I have to and perhaps I should have said at the outset that one thing I do not want to get associated with is Winston Churchill's history of the English-speaking peoples, which, of course, the United States played a very great role. But that, uh, I think, is a piece of literature, somewhat sentimental. It's uh, not what I want to talk about at all. Most of the other discussions uh, suffer not only from being resentful in tone, but also excluding the United States, and this is particularly true 
in the histories of literature, as I had suggested. Commonwealth literature is itself an excessively limiting concept. Um, indeed, it not only excludes the United States, it also um, excludes, uh, by definition, unfortunately, an adequate appreciation of, uh, the, the, tradition of uh, the tradition of English literature. Um, and it does seem to me that these uh, two limitations are particularly disabling in the emerging study of the literature of the English-speaking world, world literature in English. There is a great deal of institutionalization of that discipline going on. The Center for World Literature in English is at Flinders University near Adelaide. Uh, there are the various um, associations of Commonwealth literature and language studies, ACLAUs, there's whatever, SRACLAUs is a Sri Lankan association of the Commonwealth literature, there's uh, uh, SPACLAUs, the South Pacific Association of Commonwealth Literature and Language uh, Studies, and there's, as I say, that CLAUs itself, and no doubt there are all sorts of acronyms. Um, but um, this institutionalization does seem to me to suffer from the absence of the not only of Hamlet, uh, the United States, but also, I might say, of Claudius, uh, English literature as well. And uh, one finds very heated um, arguments currently uh, being uh, rehearsed, uh, 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 very bad-tempered ones, uh, um, partly, it seems to me, due to the fact that the, uh, the argument is not taking advantage of the uh, um, uh, reference it could make to the American literary experience and the British literary experience. This is particularly true in uh, one of the uh, very important uh, 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 literary histories that has just come out, the Oxford History of Australian Literature, um, which has been received with great uh, hostility uh, by a number of intelligent Australian critics um, because they accuse it uh, of uh, being in a subliminal and deceitful way Oxbridge-based. Uh, I don't think they're stupid enough to think because it's published by Oxford University Press that it is Oxbridge, but uh, that uh, the, the, the standards it's bringing to bear on the, the Australian literary experience, and this is something I want to get onto in part two, so I won't belabor the point here, are um, uh, in a sort of concealed and, and, and a dishonest way uh, um, uh, Anglo-centred. Uh, uh, um, whereas in, in many ways, the Oxford history of Australian literature, does, uh, one must agree to this extent, does suffer from not being able to um, allude, because it does not do so, uh, to the obvious uh, 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 presence, at least in the colonial period, of, of English literature. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, an attempt to write the history of a, a literature that's only recently autonomous without um, reference to the two great uh, factors influencing. First, English literature, and second, as uh, the influence of Emerson, whom I must refer to, return to in a minute, uh, Whitman, uh, and the general sort of transcendental, one might call it poetic, from, say, Whitman up to Robert Lowell in particular, 
has clearly been a constant secondary influence on Australian literature as it has on New Zealand literature. Um, and it is uh, a source of uh, waste of important intellectual energy that arguments are not really about what they should be a, a, about, but, but are caused by a certain lack of common uh, foundation in the proper, broadest uh, term of reference, which is, is English, uh, you know, literature in the English-speaking world, uh, i.e. also in, including the United States and the UK. And in many ways, uh, um, a... An essay that I come across is a very famous essay uh, now, fortunately, in Australian literary critical tradition, written by C.K. Stead, I think points in the right direction. It's discussing the, uh, the development of, of autonomous Australian poetry, and it is called From Whiston, i.e. Whiston Auden, to Carlos. In other words, William Carlos Williams. The point being that uh, uh, literatures such as Australian tend to move from an English tradition represented in the 30s by uh, W.H. Jordan to uh, modernism uh, represented uh, as a matter not only uh, uh, historically but also as, as an actual influence by William Carlos Williams and, as I have said, Robert Lowell. And what, uh, one of the limitations in the study of Commonwealth, or literature, I should say, in English, uh, world literature in English, is that it isn't operating as much on the line from Whiston to Carlos as it should do. So much then for trends in scholarship uh, revolving around the uh, um, entity of the English-speaking world as a field of study. Let me then conclude my first part as rapidly as I can by just briefly talking about trends in research librarianship. Now, it, I think, can be summarized, and I have to summarize it, else I shall go on beyond my allotted hour, in terms of a massive, if one looks back over the past century and a half, a massive shift from the old classic 19th century idea, exemplified, I have to say, again, as I've said before, but by the British Museum, as reformed by Panizzi, a shift from 19th century autarky, autonomy, the idea that a research library, a major research library, particularly a national research library, could, through the encyclopedic range of its collections, the skill with which it was uh, catalogued, Pinitzi's general catalogue, the skill with which it was made available to readers, Pinitzi's round reading room and so on and so forth, could operate from the point of view of its, the scholarly use, and please remember I'm talking all the time about the relation between research librarianship and scholarly trends. I'm not talking about the general reading public, except insofar as they themselves, honorably and very importantly, have become serious and virtually professional scholarly readers. But, but the, the demands of 19th century philological and historical scholarship could be met largely within the confines of one library collection, whether it's the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, the Prussian State Library in Berlin, or the British Museum Library. Now, there's been a great massive shift from that pivot, so to speak, to um, the concept most recently uh, characterized as networking or resource sharing um, because of the obvious fact, though it's it needs to be nuanced, and I haven't time to nuance it this evening, uh, more than simply saying the increase of book production in the 20th century, which admittedly is a, 
phenomenal, the increase in the professionalization of scholarship. So publish or perish, as Hutchins called it, produces uh, or accentuates the uh, scholarly component in the so-called book revolution. Um, but uh, take those uh, as serving for the purposes of uh, my point this evening that um, no longer can the demands of scholarship be met by one autonomous uh, national research library and therefore there is a trend towards resource sharing between research libraries and in particular uh, the emphasis as far as national research libraries are concerned more on the so-called national printed archive element within them, that is to say the material that they require being national libraries by legal deposit, that their prime duty towards scholarship is to make sure, whatever else they do or do not do, that the national printed archive is both acquired on a current basis from legal deposit, but also uh, retrospectively that gaps are filled uh, as the, uh, as far as the English-speaking world is concerned, a series of short title catalogues becomes more complete and that either the National Library acquires items that the STC shows it hasn't got or it settles for the STC as itself a major instrument of networking and resource sharing and the scholar knows that if it's not in um, the BL, it'll be in the Morgan, it'll be in the Library of Congress, it'll be in the Folger, it'll be in the Bodleian or, or wherever. Um, nevertheless, though um, uh, uh, the shift from the encyclopedic uh, 19th century uh, 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 system of national research librarianship uh, 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 that has been superseded by resource sharing on the basis of national printed archives one does have a problem with those national printed archives that are in a world language that's mainly Spanish, French and of course English the fact is and this is where I must briefly refer to the British Library series of colloquia that by legal deposit because of the trends in international conglomerate and agglomerate publishing a library like the British Library in the English speaking world tends to acquire whether it likes it or not a considerable amount of Australian uh, books uh, New Zealand books American books Canadian books uh, through legal deposit the interest, therefore, in national research libraries, and particularly the national research libraries in the English-speaking world, though at this point I will say that I think most of my remarks are equally applicable to other uh, language, language, so to speak, ecumenies, as, uh, uh, as has been called uh, by William McNeil in the University of Chicago, other world language communities such as French and Spanish uh, nevertheless let me concentrate on the English one even so far as libraries are concerned that um, one has to somehow come to a rational view of uh, the, the uh, uh, future of collection development for a, for a national research library in a world language community that um, uh, interacts more deliberately with, first of all, the demands of scholarship that I have mentioned, and secondly, with, of course, the existence of other national printed archives, the Library of Congress, the National Library of Canada, National Library of Australia, Canberra, the National Library of New Zealand in Wellington, that this um, can produce 
an unacceptable degree of confusion and lack of positive networking and resource sharing unless these extra national components of a national printed archive in this type of case I'm considering are reduced to some sort of intellectual order and sense of uh, role within this wider continuum of evolving scholarly interest and library development and to spend no more than I hope a couple of minutes on the British Library series of colloquia the purpose of the colloquia is to not only survey what let's talk about next February we have acquired and are acquiring a case of Australia, New Zealand and South Pacific books, but also to have present at the colloquium representatives from the other national printed archives concerned, that's me, that is Canberra and Wellington. Not only that, but also to have faculty, insofar as they yet exist, dealing with Australian studies and New Zealand studies uh, from, of course, Australia and New Zealand uh, uh, themselves, that is relatively easy, but more difficult is to find what in the United Kingdom are the interests in this material, because ultimately when the chips are down, um, if you can't speak to a constituency in your own country that is going to use this material, it becomes of course very difficult to argue for increased resources. So, the, in, the, the research libraries, particularly national research libraries, are in inevitably, inescapably involved in the emergence of the English-speaking world as a field of study, as are uh, historians and literary critics and scholars. And in both cases, it seems to me that one needs urgently an overall sense of these, the way these various factors are developing, which both on the side of scholarship and on the side of research library administration is still to some extent lacking. I then come to my second section of my what I want to say, which is to suggest very briefly, and this I can read, um, what seem to me eight features common to the political, economic and literary and cultural experience of the various components of the English-speaking world. Again, the factors, I suspect, I believe, are also common to other world language communities, Spanish, French, but let me just deal with the eight common features of the English-speaking world as a field of study. Let me say at the outset that uh, I am drawing a great deal in organizing this section on the great thesis, uh, uh, thesis, thesis writers like Frederick Jackson Turner, the Frontier Thesis, or Harold Innes from Toronto, formerly of University of Toronto, on the staple theory. And I can but, at the time at my disposal, just briefly allude to figures such as Turner, Innes, and so on and so forth. This is, in a sense, an attempt to summarize the various classic, or shortly, I think, to be classic theses that pertain to this uh, world language community uh, entity. And the second thing to say is that uh, I am speaking from, though maybe it would be n not a limiting uh, fact, I'm speaking from the European point of view. It's what seems common to the former European colonies 
when looked at from the European point of view. Well, then the first common feature is, of course, a matrix, a universal matrix, the universal matrix of European exploration, discovery, and initial settlement. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, all the colonies uh, being, uh, to begin with, uh, little differentiated, as they subsequently became differentiated between what has been called colonies of, of settlement, it's Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, and colonies of alien rule, Africa, India, the Caribbean, and to some extent the Pacific. But to begin with, under this universal matrix, the reason why the matrix is, is universal in its effect was that all was subject to dis uh, exploration, discovery, and initial settlement from the 16th to the 18th centuries. Insofar as all were part of the so-called old mercantile empire and subject to Christian missions and the expansion of European scientific interest, particularly anthropology, that lasted, as I've said, from, say, Cartier in the early 16th century to James Cook in the 18th century. And one thing one does discover is moving eastwards from Singapore all the way round down south up to Hawaii is the constant presence of James Cook. Um, uh, a clearly a figure that uh, deserves, I think, far more attention than the average reader may give him. Um, and fortunately, Cook, uh, as, and this relates to this first factor, has been subject to a classic series of treatments by the New Zealand historian with the unlikely name of J.C. Beaglehole, but Beaglehole edited the Cook's Journals for the Hakluyt Society. He wrote a classic text on the exploration of the Pacific and uh, a classic biography of James Cook. And the factor that Beaglehole and Oscar Spate, whom I have mentioned, uh, preoccupied is, I think, this I, the the, the, the universalizing effect of European exploration, discovery, and initial settlement. The second feature is the emergence from this economic mercantilism and the predominance in the later colonial and ex-colonial economies of single staple, in the innest sense of the word, exports to Europe, followed when mercantilism was replaced by laissez-faire as an economic doctrine, of, of world power by what has been called import substitution, the, uh, which began in the United States. That is to say, the replacement of a, uh, the dependence on European manufacturing that was implicit in, in basing one's economy on export of staples such as cod and fur, largely from North America, which Innis subjected to two classics in the United States by local industries based on import substitution. Remember the um, Winchester rifle was uh, developed uh, as a means to produce cheap rifles to, as a substitute for importing them from Europe and the discovery of the theory of interchangeable parts that the present Librarian of Congress, Dan Boston, in volume one of his uh, the Americans' uh, colonial experience, of course, made great play with, and quite rightly too. It's, it, 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 import substitution is a, a factor, oddly enough, of world uh, historical significance. The third common feature is the creation of a basic ethos in the cultural sense for the increasingly independent ex-colonies 
And this is particularly true, of course, of the colonies of settlement rather than the colonies of alien rule for North America, Australia, Canada, rather than India uh, uh, and Africa. But uh, uh, basic ethos for the increasingly independent colonies by mass immigration from the rapidly industrializing British Isles and indeed Europe of the early 19th century. And it's important to say an immigration made creative and not as later in the 1930s and so on forth and currently now in North America with Hispanics uh, from the south of the border not as later made confusing made creative by the safety valve effect of a more or less open internal frontier and this of course is the classic thesis of Frederick Jackson Turner and of his main uh, one of his main pu uh, disciples Marcus Lee Hansen now the fourth feature and here the the colonies, uh, both types, come together again. Uh, it's not only a settlement, but of alien rule. The fourth feature is a more strictly geopolitical effect of immigration and the open frontier, shown by the significance, in Turner's phrases, of the section, the region, the state, as opposed to the federal uh, uh, nation. I'm t uh, talking now about uh, uh, Australia, or the province in Canadian terms. The significance of what we might call the section in the political structure of the new republics and dominions. The structure of politics in Canada, in Australia, New Zealand, and even in the United States, despite the Civil War, is essentially confederal, as it is in India, in Africa, uh, and in the Caribbean. It has subsequently proved to be so. The structure of politics is essentially confederal. And there is a palpable contrast between this confederalism and the so-called high politics characteristic of England and France, that studied by Sir Lewis Namier on, in the 19th century, 20th century, Maurice Cowling, where politics are not so much a matter of um, dealing as between quasi-independent kingdoms as between the, the regions of the United States, the South, the Midwest, uh, the, the uh, New England, and so on and so forth, but between individuals largely maneuvering through correspondence as though they were part of a Paul Mall Club. The fifth common feature is the importance of communications in the broadest sense of the word, from railways to print, primarily newspapers. Again, the subject of Innes's first book on the Canadian Pacific Railroad and last major book called uh, Empire and Communication. And interlinked with communications, the importance of the late 19th century business corporation particularly in the United States, as opposed to the classic European family firm. In other words, the importance of communications and the business corporation in attempting, though never entirely successfully, simply to hold together such horizontally extensive territories. The importance of newspapers, and examines the history of the book, in the former colonies is quite overwhelming particularly in the uh, colonial and the uh, immediate ex-colonial period, the importance of corporations in the later on. In the United States, say, the corporation complex largely controlled by J.P. Morgan, or in India, the importance of the Tata Corporation in Bombay uh, is a major common feature, it seems to me, and one could talk about the Broken Hill proprietary, famous BHP in Australia, which is started as a, as a, as a mining and steel manufacturing complex, is now um, 
all over Australia, or the Hudson Bay Company, The Bay, in Canada. These uh, transcontinental business corporations, linked, of course, to communications. Over and above this, however, or then, this, uh, I have said that they, their attempt to uh, integrate uh, the horizontal extensive territories was never entirely successful. Over and above this, then, the six and uh, at present most conspicuous common feature... I think, in light of what I said in my opening remarks, is the continuing search for genuine and effective national identity in the face of these ill-controlled centrifugal tendencies through the pursuit of literature in the broadest sense of the word. Now here, by literature I mean writing of an intellectually ambitious sort, not if I may say so, mere journalism, but not only belles lettres. I must pause here and say that one of the things one notices in the Oxford history of Australian literature, one thing one will notice in the Oxford history of New Zealand literature, one notice in the literary history of Canada, the literary history of the United States, is that for quite a long period, the literature that is insignificant tends to be reports of voyages, discoveries, almost reports by civil by bureaucrats, rather than the, the, the the poem or the novel, which for too long tends to be, unlike the semi-scientific local reports, to be influenced by uh, European literature, particularly Sir Walter Scott and Alfred Lord Tennyson. It is literature in the broadest sense, because what we're talking about is what Emerson called the operations of the delegated intellect, and I'm referring here to a very important passage in The American Scholar, where he defines the delegated intellect in terms of the early U.S. Republic, in terms of there is everybody making things, beginning to open up canals and uh, move across towards the West. But there has to be a group of people delegated to tell the pioneers what it is in fact they are doing to articulate the significance of their new experience. And Emerson used, it seems to me, this excellent term, the delegated intellect, as the description of a very important role of writing, uh, uh, cultural writing, literature in the broadest sense of the word, in an ex-colonial or decolonized uh, situation. But the point I want to make is not only the existence of the delegated intellect, because the delegated intellect has been also true in European literatures uh, ever since Dante and St. Thomas Aquinas and before and after, no doubt. But, but in the, the uh, uh, ex-colonies, the delegated intellect tends to be, in a phrase used by Northrop Fry very effectively, tends to be garrisoned. It tends to be have to be organized much more deliberately than is the case in Europe. The man of letters is less conspicuous uh, in the ex-colonies than has been the case since uh, Petrarch or whoever in Europe. It tends to be garrisoned in a sequence of high cultural institutions from church or mission, mission to university and then to government and in the United States semi-public philanthropic agency including <coughs> writers that the delegated intellect is tends typically to be found there that um, uh, uh, the sort of leaders of cultural opinion there's a 
interesting review by Dan Boston in one of the issues of Perspectives in American History on the, the, the significance of the college president, particularly, I say, in, this, in these hallowed walls, Nicholas Murray Butler, as somehow being the person or the type of person that the citizenry looked to to be told to what, who are we, where are we going, what, what is it all about. The, uh, uh, this uh, is only for one perhaps limited period of history, but the garrisoning of the delegated intellect in an institution such as a university preceded by the mission or the church and followed uh, uh, in part by the, uh, the, the need for government or extra-university financial agencies to keep the delegated intellect going. Um, if the Guggenheim Foundation representative were here, I would point to him, but he isn't this evening. The function, then, of the delegated intellect, thus Garris, is garrisoned in this way, so that the writers, the creative writers, the Walt Whitmans, or if I may now refer to some possibly lesser-known Canadians and Australians, E.J. Pratt or Patrick White, or as far as New Zealand's concerned, Frank Sarderson, or as far as Africa's concerned, Chino Achebe, or as far as Caribbean's concerned, V.S. Naipaul, or I may now give you a name from the South Pacific, so far as Albert Went, who's a figure I will return to of very great interest, so far as the creative writers are concerned, and their best readers, their most intelligent readers are concerned, um, the delegated intellect can art uh, so the, the, the writers and their best readers seeking to articulate the national identity can be provided by the delegated intellect with a conceptual framework necessary to demonstrate and in a sense canonize, another word I'll have to return to, what it is in fact these writers and readers have found. Now such a framework if they were European would have, uh, would have been inherited by the writers and readers but in this case of the ex-colonies, it does seem it has to be constantly and deliberately transcendentalized, in the most technical sense of the word, from the European tradition. And the classic example of this sixth factor seems to me, what we might call the Emerson factor, is the Reverend Herman Northrop Fry, in other words, churchman, uh, uh, um, as well as professor and critic, with, on the one hand, his Euro-centered neo-Aristotelian anatomy of criticism, and on the other, his normative essays on the Canadian imagination, normative from uh, uh, articulating what the Canadian literary experience has been and what its canonical uh, uh, sort of corpus is. Even so, the seventh common feature is the fact that as these former fragments of Europe, as Canada, the US, Australia, India, Africa have been called, re-enter the world arena in their own right, come of age, which is in fact what they are doing, forgive me, I'm not saying that the United States is only just doing that, but it's true that Canada and Australia, I think as well as Africa and India, are only recently so doing. As these former fragments of Europe re-enter the world arena, they do so as essentially multicultural entities. Whatever the English origins, as I've said already, the Maori presence, the Aboriginal presence, the French-Canadian presence, the American-Indian presence, the Hispanic presence, um, is a much more essential component of their identity as they enter the world arena. In the words of Glazer, Nathan Glazer and Daniel Moynihan's thesis, it is a case of beyond the melting pot. I think an excellent book. If indeed the melting pot 
can be said to have ever existed in any real stable sense. Finally, to come back to uh, the European interest in all this, the eighth common feature is the growing effect on the identity of the original mother country, in this case the UK, of what used to be called in the United States back trailers from the former colonies of settlement, whether as promoters or as critics of what we are all emerging into, which is, I'm afraid, is it not, universal suburbia. In other words, whether it's F.W. Woolworth as a promoter or T.S. Eliot as a critic, or Beaverbrook as a promoter or Northrop Fry and McLuhan as a, as a critic. And it is this feature, the effect backwards, backtrailing into the uh, future of the identity of the mother country that is the cause of the British Library's, one of the causes of the British Library's interest in the English-speaking world as a unified field of study. I come now to my last part. Um, I think the, um, even though well, one can see perhaps the way ahead to uh, systematize and unify the field of study, it is still a case uh, that uh, the best we have are the old theses. I mean, Frederick Jackson Turner wrote the first version of his uh, Frontier Thesis, I think in something like 1895, which is a long time ago. And one notices that uh, uh, it is the, the, the Turner Thesis that is still very active in Australia and New Zealand, the, it, producing more thesis-type books. The two that are still current are uh, The Australian Legend by Russell Ward, which appeared in, I think, 19, in the mid-1960s. That is an attempt, by analogy with Henry Nash's Smith, The Virgin Land. I think that is very close to point to an alternative Australian literary tradition from the so-called mateship which is a horrible word, but is, uh, which characterizes the stories of Henry Lawson and the uh, poems of a poet who's much better poet than his name suggests. He's called Banjo Patterson. Or another very important, much more Turnerian book, uh, Geoffrey Blaney's The Tyranny of Distance as a main factor in us, the development of Australian experience of itself. Uh, the analogy with Turner is, uh, of course, very close to the idea of distance and frontier and so on and so forth. Um, so even though Turner is a, uh, nearly, 90, uh, nearly 100 years old and 90 years old, um, the, the, the dominance of thesis-types books, uh, Blaney, uh, 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 Russell Ward, is still the best we have to point to to, re, uh, to, to, to uh, get a, a sense of the development of the English-speaking world as a field of study. I am now, all the time, uh, repeating my own experience. I have asked the question, what do I read to get started? They say, well, you'll still have to read Russell Ward. You'll still have to read Geoffrey Blaney. Uh, uh, we regret this, in a sense, because they are thesis books, and indeed they are, um, as Turner was. Uh, again, Turner, a much, I think, maligned historian, because Turner was a damn sight, if I may say so, more nuanced, or became so, wrote far more uh, 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 careful books than his association with, after all, what was one of his very early writings, suggests. But the fact is that thesis books are the best we have, and they are still somewhat abstract and um, lacking in solidity. And the process, 
now underway is the, the revision, the taking apart of these theses. Turner re-examined as a title, I suppose, or Blaney re-examined as a title of more articles than it's perhaps healthy to see. <coughs> Nevertheless, uh, the revision of the theses and the attempt to solidify them with detailed research um, is uh, the current trend in scholarship, uh, which uh, it brings me to my final section about the uh, bibliographical infrastructure of this solidifying and revision uh, of the rather abstract theses. And modes of this revision and solidification are, I think, two very obvious ones at the moment. First of all, dictionaries of national biography. I mention that because uh, if I had time, I would go once again over the relation between Panitzi's British Museum Library and its uh, indispensability for uh, Leslie Stephen and Sidney Lee in doing the original Dictionary of National Biography in the UK or uh, the National or uh, the, the process of Stutzbibliothek in the German and French national biographies. Dictionaries of national biography do signifying scholarship, not understandably, because they carry a whole generation of scholars with them to do the detailed work. So, following the Dictionary of American Biography pre-war, you have in progress the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, the Dictionary of Australian Biography, and proposed in the light of the, in New Zealand, the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography. Linked to these, it would seem, you what are meant to be authoritative collaborative histories of uh, cultural histories, particularly histories of literature. Thus you have the literary history of Canada, you've just had appear the Oxford history of Australian literature. Again, in connection with the, uh, the sesquicentenary in New Zealand, there is discussion of an Oxford history of New Zealand literature. And I might just throw aside the other remark that one of the political concentrating factors certainly in the southwest Pacific, is the fact that there are two centenaries coming up in 1988, the Australian bicentenary. It is the bicentenary of the arrival of what I've called the first fleet, that is to say the first uh, uh, load of, con of, uh, of convicts and their guards in, in Bot Botany Bay in 1788. And in... Um, 1992 years later, you have the 150 years in New Zealand celebration of the Treaty of Waitangi, of which I may say the Maoris, since they felt that the treaty was robbed them of their own lands, are not proposing to participate. So, solidification is underway, uh, revision and solidification. What then one might uh, project for the... Um, more systematic organization of the major research libraries involved in the English-speaking world from the international point of view. Well, already, and I now come over to some very familiar territory, um, I shall speak in terms of uh, four levels of systematization. Already, the first level is, I think, well-established, the bedrock of the whole system. Ever since 1950, when Werner Klapp request of Luther Evans produced the first UNESCO Library of Congress survey of bibliographical sources on a world basis. This idea of the national bibliographical agency being responsible for the national bibliography and of course making that real and permanent by also being responsible for the national printed archive based on legal deposit has been the foundation stone of what we now 
I'm afraid, getting tired of the phrase, is known as universal bibliographical control and universal availability of publications. Nevertheless, um, the national bibliographies, even in such unlikely places as the South Pacific, because if I may pause there, the South Pacific, the largest country, Papua New Guinea, only has, I think, two million. Fiji, the next largest, has, what, a million and a half inhabitants. The in 10 other uh, nations that are members of the South Pacific Commission uh, have, uh, on average, something like a less than a quarter of a million to have a uh, not only a national bibliography, but even a publishing system, as I shall have to say in conclusion, with a population base that small, is um, not easy, to put it mildly. Nevertheless, uh, UBC, UAP, uh, has been in existence long enough, the concept of the National Printed Archive, the National Bibliography, that the uh, equivalent, at least, regional Biblio, uh, bibliographies, if not national, the, uh, the, 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 the South Pacific Commission rather than the individual islands, are in being. The bedrock level, I think, is alive and well. Secondly, however, I see signs of a, uh, a second level organization uh, in terms of what one might call regional research library systems. I'm still talking mainly about national and very large uh, research libraries. Regional systems corresponding, I think, to the regional studies, ocean or continental spate or Cambridge history of Africa that I mentioned earlier, corresponding to the growth of the regional or supranational regional uh, uh, foundation of historical studies in the world, corresponding to that, and providing as regional research library systems information facilities that are more directly responsive to specific scholarly needs than can possibly be a inevitably mechanically produced national uh, bibliography and an inevitably mechanically acquired national printed archive. That's the concern of the bedrock level, that the res regional research library systems are coming into being because um, more and more the solidifying uh, of scholarship is requiring more tailor-made surfaces, uh, services. In the Southwest Pacific complex, as after all the one I know best, I suppose I know best, having been there six weeks, I great authority, based on Canberra, uh, I think I must now make the point, bring back Canberra into the scene, because in the South uh, West Pacific, after I'm talking about Australia, New Zealand, and the, uh, uh, and the South Pacific Islands, from Hawaii, the Great Triangle, uh, from Hawaii down to Fiji, across to Easter Island, um, for political but also sheer financial reasons, has to be the National Library of Australia at Canberra. And it is the case that uh, most of the financial and technological support for uh, specialized information, online information systems, speaking to the uh, scholarly affairs and indeed the information affairs of the Southwest Pacific have come very conspicuously from the National Library of Australia in Canberra and it is a library I commend to your attention because they've got to hear a lot about it. The one dedicated information system that is depended on Canberra that you might find interesting is a so-called Fanshawe project for archiving as much as possible of the South Pacific 
music and oral culture before it is obliterated as it is in course of being obliterated not so much by uh, the book or the newspaper not so much a matter of print and literacy or orality and print as by video tapes I am told but David Fanshawe who is 15% nut but 85% a very shrewd and able archivist is doing this at USP at the University of the South Pacific Pacific Music Archives and that is his report as a gift to the British Library and that is the publicity about David Fanshawe whom you will see is uh, not as most of us are but my point is that the uh, very elaborate equipment that he has to take into the field uh, is provided by the National Library of Australia at Canberra by Harrison Bryan almost personally that then is the second level regional research library systems above that I think one must say there's a, a, a third level constituted by what I can think of no better phrase to call them than the two complementary and I've already used the William McNeil phrase of ec ecumeny the two complementary ecumenical collections of the Library of Congress and the British Library their role <laughs> certainly in, in complement to each other have, has not been uh, yet uh, worked out at all I, I for what it's if there's any interest I shall be going to Washington on Wednesday to report to the boss if he's there Daniel J. B. himself as to what I've been up to to see if we can pursue an idea he threw out to me when I first took over the English language branch that somehow because of the complementary richness because of legal deposit and because of Pernitz's purchasing policy it is undoubtedly the case that for the 18th and early 19th or mid, up to the mid 19th century the British Library has on a worldwide basis, the richest collection of material relating to the English-speaking uh, world. If one thinks that most of the main primary data for the South Pacific are the, are the, are the reports of the missionaries, or of the uh, uh, succeeding the reports of, say, James Cook and uh, George Vancouver uh, and the, the, the original explorers, uh, plus the dominance of the London book trade, even when Australian and New Zealand history writing and novel writing began, therefore we require required by legal deposit. In the historical respect, we obviously are the richest, but of course since 1945, if not earlier, because of PL 480 and the various uh, uh, advantages the Library of Congress has had since then, their coverage of the, the material from the English-speaking world must be larger and will continue to be larger than anyone else's looked at on an ecumenical panoramic way and what one is talking about is the advantage to scholarship at having a panoramic collection in one location or in two locations uh, the possibility of supporting deep and wide scholarship if Toynbee weren't so discredited one might say Toynbee types type scholarship on site but this leaves me with a fourth and final uh, level it is a fact that the Independent Research Library Association is coming to order at dinner at the Princeton Club good luck to them on Wednesday and I'm referring to the complex of independent research libraries and by which of course I mean Folger, Huntington, Morgan uh, 
uh, American Antiquarian Society, Newbury, and so on and so forth. Their contribution to what I have termed the solidifying of scholarship relating to the English-speaking world by the particular contribution that more and more we are realizing can and should be made by the relatively new discipline, largely French discipline, of the history of the book. If one takes the case of the much criticized Australian, uh, Oxford history of Australian literature, one of the things most constantly complained about is that though it is talking about the novel, and it's written by a good friend of mine, Adrian Mitchell, who's a, a very able and uh, as well as being a very nice chap, nevertheless that chapter on the novel is almost completely innocent of the conditions of publishing of the novel in Australia. The whole Oxford history of Australian literature is, is, is dangerously innocent of what the history of the Australian book could contribute to it and much of the criticism uh, I, I think can be uh, put down to that one fact apart from uh, the other uh, main fact, the exclusion of any, much, uh, any systematic reference to either the literary experience of the UK or the United States. Therefore, it seems that there is evidence that the independent research libraries are coming more and more associated with the history of the book. May I remind you that one of the most important, potentially most uh, exemplary examples is your own American Antiquarian Society and its now successful bid for NEH money to set up a project to produce by 1990 a authoritative, multi-authored, I, uh, I think, a history of the book in the United States up to at least 1900. As the short title catalogues get completed, as indeed even the 18th century short title catalogue gets completed, and further work by the National Bibliographical Agency becomes of less and less importance, let's say further brute force compile, compiling of the STCs become less and less necessary. The STCs reach the point of virtual perfection. It is likely that the exploitation of the STCs uh, from the point of view of English-speaking world as a field of study and the, what the history of the book can contribute to, to that field of study will be located in the appropriate independent research library for 15th century English books, the Morgan Library, for the Renaissance, the Restoration, the Folger, the Huntington, and if I may include under independent research libraries, the quasi-independent campus research libraries, then the Clark. Likewise, in the history of the Australia and New Zealand book, uh, there is a national library in Canberra, but it is no accident that one of the major publishing archives that affecting the whole of modern Australian literature in its very important uh, uh, critical path from dependence to post-colonial independence, that is say in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s and the 60s, all, most of the, the, uh, uh, the writers, the A.D. Hopes, uh, the the uh, the Patrick no, no Patrick White was UK uh, um, but the uh, Xavier Herberts the Hal Porters were published by one firm Angus and Robertson Angus and Robertson unfortunately have gone the way of so many 
undercapital by 20th century standards undercapitalized firms they've been bought up by a transnational conglomerate a, a APC in the United Kingdom the good thing is that their archives have just been deposited not in the National Library of Canberra but in the Mitchell Library of the State Library of New South Wales and I was lucky to flick over some pages of the A&R files where the correspondence between these apprentice writers trying to establish their independence technically and professionally as well as morally from the UK the correspondence between them and the uh, in the American sense editors the Maxwell Perkins equivalent in Angus and Robertson is extremely rich and extremely revealing as likely to be as revealing about the uh, novelists of the 30s and the 40s as the correspondence between Max Perkins and Fitzgerald and Hemingway had been in the history of the United States uh, of American literature. Um, likewise in the Turnbull, the equivalent of Angus and Robertson, though much briefer in his life, was the Caxton Press of, uh, 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 in Christchurch. And though the archive is not fully deposited, elements have gone to the Turnbull Library in Wellington. It so happens the Turnbull Library is part of the National Library of New Zealand, but a pretty independent part. Um, may I just then conclude by generalizing a, uh, about the importance of the history of the book. Again, it's widest sense from the point of view of colonial and post-colonial high cultural experience. If you take it at its broadest, as we now must, in other words, including the Aborigines, the Maoris, the Fijians, the Hawaiians, uh, uh, the, 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 the Polynesians. In other words, the whole recently emerging into fashionability matter of orality and literacy and print. I refer again, I come back to the leading emerging Fijian novelist, Albert Went, whose book the Leaves of the Banyan Tree, he told me last week, has just been accepted through the offices of Penguin London, uh, who had to put him into paperback. He's going to be published by Doubleday next year or so. But a case of Albert Went, like Achebe, um, uh, like so many more self-consciously uh, post-dependent uh, post writers, is operating with oral speech rhythms, tribal speech rhythms, but does progress uh, steadily to, through the experience of print, of writing for orthodox publisher, to become, in the case of Albert Went, a recognizably, uh, what should we say, uh, I wouldn't say regular, but a recognizably individual novelist, a, a man of letters, a profession, the progress from, in one lifetime, from, in the case of Albert Went, or in the case of Achebe, in the case of particularly Things Fall Apart, which I suppose is his text where this is most evident, from the use of oral tribal folk tale through to sophisticated fiction writing, um, Things Fall Apart is such an interesting book because though the content is oral folk tale. The title is obviously taken from W.B. Yeats. I mean, uh, one might say that Yeats is um, way back, a uh, the sort of transitional figure from Irish folk tale to uh, world, liter world literary standing. The history of the book, therefore, 
I think it is a perspective of very wide and general application. In the case of Albert Wendt, that it has a dysfunctional uh, aspect, I and mean, it isn't a case of uh, 19th century hooray for print. Uh, Gutenberg came and there was light. Uh, one of the problems is the difficulty of publishing and for research libraries to acquire literature from areas like the South Pacific because of precisely this takeover of transnational conglomerates. Albert Wendt's first and very important anthology of Fiji, Fijian writing was published by Longman Paul. Now, Paul was a traditional New Zealand publisher. Longman is not even any longer Longman now. It's not even Longman Penguin. It's a Cowdray Enterprises uh, based on, uh, Lord knows what, probably oil or tourism. Um, and this is producing price problems, that the price of Albert Wentz Anthology is $9, which if it were produced locally in the USP in Fiji would probably cost something like $2. Um, uh, the feeling, justified or not, by writers such as Wendt, and particularly the Hawaiian writers, that transnational publishers will not take a risk and encourage recently oral, only apprentice print writers. The history of the book is not just a simple good thing. It is really a matter of a fundamental, fundamental factor. I, perhaps there are nine factors common to the English-speaking world. But let me say, the next instalment of orality literacy print, the New Zealand experience will be given from this podium next January, January the 23rd, by a person who has influenced this paper more than anybody else, Professor Don McKenzie, the University of Victoria, Wellington. Thank you very much.